This week's Parsha podcast is sponsored in loving memory of Shlomo ben Chaim Elisha Halevi. May his soul merit a spiritual ascendancy in heaven. Parshas Achare has 80 verses. It spans chapter 16 through 18 of the book of Leviticus. We have 28 mitzvahs in this week's Parsha. And it begins immediately in the aftermath of the death of the sons of Aaron that we read several weeks ago in Parshas Shemini. And the first chapter is going to discuss what happens on Yom Kippur, the special day where the high priest with the Kohen Gadol walks into the Holy of Holies. The second chapter is going to deal with various laws related to sacrifices and consumption of blood amongst other laws. And the third and final chapter of our Parsha is going to delineate the forbidden relationships, the forbidden unions, and the consequences of the Jewish people not abiding by those laws. So the Parsha begins, Hashem spoke to Moses after the death of Aaron's two sons, and Hashem spoke to Moses, go tell Aaron not to enter into the Holy of Holies, not to enter at all times to the sanctuary, don't go past the curtain in front of the cover next to the ark, the Holy of Holies. If you do the, if you do enter, you're going to die, and the only time you come in is with certain sacrifices, wearing certain clothing, and of course, that's only on the holiest day of the calendar on Yom Kippur. Now, incidentally, our Parsha contains both readings that we read on Yom Kippur. On Yom Kippur, read from the Torah. The morning reading is in chapter 16, and the afternoon reading, the reading that we do by Mincha, is chapter 18. So the Parsha begins with an instruction that the Holy of Holies is sacrosanct. You can't walk in there willy-nilly, only at special times, only special people, and only with special requirements, sacrifices, clothing, etc. Only then is the high priest allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. But it is interesting that the Parsha begins with a certain preamble. Hashem spoke to Moses after the death of Aaron's two sons. Now, the connection is obvious. The two sons of Aaron, they entered the sanctuary, they entered the mission of the tabernacle unauthorized. They provided, they provided an unauthorized sacrifice, and therefore that's the warning. So Rashi tells us right away that there is a powerful lesson. Moses is conveying a warning to Aaron, don't walk into the Holy of Holies in an unauthorized manner because you will die. And that warning becomes very visceral very tangible, very palpable when he says, oh, your sons, they did that, they died, and therefore you should not do that because if you do that, you will die. Now, it's interesting, like we mentioned, we read this on Yom Kippur and there's a famous teaching in the Zohar that tells us that by invoking the death of Nadav and Avihu, the two sons of Aaron, it can help us in the atonement process. Uh, the Zohar tells us if someone is saddened by the death of Aaron's two sons, the two righteous sons of Aaron, and you cry over them on Yom Kippur, that is a means, that's a tool to be forgiven yourself for all your sins. And unlike Aaron, none of your sons will die in your lifetime. And I think, you know, more, more broadly speaking, there are some very valuable lessons here in this narrative and in this preamble related to Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, of course, is the day that we orient around repentance, around uh, self-examination, self-reflection, contemplation, to figure out what we did, what we did wrong, how we could rectify it, how we could atone, expiate ourselves from our sins, 
Of course, we have the confession that we do, and the entire day is oriented around evoking the genuine feelings of sorrow and regret over our misdeeds. And it's important to remember on Yom Kippur that our actions, our our spiritual actions, they, they matter, and they create realities. And a sin is something where someone creates a barrier between them and the Almighty. And we talk about on Yom Kippur, the death of the sons of Aaron. And, you know, they were righteous, as we mentioned. And in fact, they were destined to be the heirs to Moses and Aaron, to be the leaders and the high priest of the people. And yet they made a slight misstep, what we would think is, they sinned. And what happened? They were immediately and irrevocably punished. And I think there's no greater display, or arguably there's no greater display of the realness of sin and the realness of the spiritual realm than reading about Nadav and Avihu and their tragic and perhaps untimely demise. And us reading that today is a very powerful experience that the spiritual realm is real, it's tangible, and it matters. And that's, of course, one of the foundational emotions that will help us have a meaningful and successful repentance on Yom Kippur. Now, maybe another idea here about why we read this and why we have this preamble that we read on Yom Kippur is that, you know, sin can be something which causes a person to have further sin. You know, someone could wallow in the depths of despair and and misery and despondency as a result of their sin, and that could actually have a vicious cycle where they go down the spiral of sin because the sin makes them feel depressed, sad about themselves, and that's actually the ploy and the tactic of the Sahara of the evil inclination, to make us not get out of the cycle of sin. And here, what do we see? We see that Aaron's two sons, they died, and that's being used as a springboard for better behavior in the future. They walked into the Holy of Holies, or they walked into the sanctuary in an unauthorized way, but we're going to use that and try to draw something positive out of it. We're going to take the lessons learned from the sin and use them for good. And in fact, there's a fascinating teaching in the Talmud, the book of Yoma, at the end, it tells us that when someone repents out of love, they actually convert their sins into merits. These sins that were previously pushing them away from God because the person repented out of love, i.e., they use that as fuel to love God. They use the sin as a springboard to improve. Then that original sin, if you look at it in the big picture, it actually brought them closer to God, not further from God. And therefore, it, retroactively, they get reassigned as mitzos. Now, broadly speaking, what's the general idea of not walking into the holy of holies often? So Rashi tells us that because there is a cloud that appears upon the ark and the holy of holies, in effect, God is always present in the holy of holies, and therefore it's a very special designated holy place. It can't be walked into just without anything. It has to be done with the proper time, the proper place, the proper individual. Now, perhaps we could we could add the Ramban all the way back in the beginning of the instruction related to the tabernacle. He told us that the mission of the tabernacle is an, essentially an extension of Sinai. It's a portable Sinai. Just at Sinai, there was this incredible climax of revelation of God 
and closeness that that engendered, the presence of God was present and felt by all at Sinai. And we read many times in, in Exodus chapter 20 that the mortal men couldn't handle it. They couldn't even come close to the mountain. They couldn't touch the mountain. They certainly couldn't ascend the mountain. And if they did, they would die because this was a touch point between heaven and earth. This is a time where God's presence, so to speak, departed from the heavenly realm, or to a certain extent, obviously, and came here. And that was present at Sinai, but that's also present in the tabernacle. God's there, and therefore, unless a person is in the right frame of mind and in the right situation and granted the permission to enter, they can't walk in without suffering, without suffering very dire consequences. And there's another point here that we see in the literature on the subject that when someone is too familiar with something, they lose their sensitivity to it. It becomes, it becomes callous. In fact, the Talmud tells us that there was a law when someone walked into the temple itself, they had to enter from one gate and they had to exit from a different gate. Why? Because if they were to enter and exit from the same gate, they'll develop familiarity with the temple and they'll lose their sense of novelty. And we want people to have a, spe- a specialness, a special feeling that they attribute towards the temple. And once they get too familiar, too comfortable with it, it loses its potency. And in fact, in the aftermath of the golden calf, we read how Moses took the tent of meaning and he pitched it outside of the camp. And perhaps we could say that the reason why the catastrophe of the golden calf happened is because there was a loss of reverence for God. It was amidst the camp and it became kind of a thing that we're used to, accustomed to. We got acculturated to spirituality. It didn't actually resonate as deeply and therefore that allowed us to fall into the traps of the golden calf. Regularity, monotony, routine, habit, those things are the enemy of spiritual sublimity. At the epicenter of holiness, the holy of holies, you don't enter at all times. If you do, you will die. That's what Aaron is told. And only once a year, only the high priest, and only under very specific conditions. Now, from verse 4 throughout the rest of the chapter, we're told the various Yom Kippur services. And in fact, today, of course, we don't have a temple yet. But if you look at the Musaf services that we do on Yom Kippur, it's very much oriented around trying to reenact, at least via the liturgy, via the prayer, to reenact what the high priest did on Yom Kippur. So the first thing that we read here is that he shall don a sacred linen tunic, linen breeches should be upon his flesh, linen sash, linen turban. So he's wearing all the linen garments. Of course, we read about the vestments of the high priest and the special eight garments that he wore, that only he wore, and they're made out of gold or there's a lot of gold in those eight garments. And here we're told that when he walks into the Holy of Holies, he cannot wear his eight special garments of the high priest. He has to wear different ones, the linen ones, the white ones. Why can the high priest not wear the gold garments into the Holy of Holies? Sarashi so tells us because they have gold. And gold portends or evokes the golden calf. And that cannot be on display when he's entering the Holy of Holies and he's there to request forgiveness. In the words of Rashi, a prosecutor cannot become an advocate. The high priest, together with everything 
that he's doing and that he is personifying on that day, on Yom Kippur, is there to bring about forgiveness for the Jewish people. If part of his persona is gold, gold connotes the golden calf, and therefore that's not something, that's a prosecutor, that's something which is going to arouse judgment of the Jewish people, that cannot be used to arouse forgiveness for the Jewish people. In fact, there's a widespread an ancient custom to wear white garments. Even today in Yom Kippur, of course, we wear the kittel. Some people are accustomed to wear white yarmulkes and white suits and white everything. And that's, of course, stems from this idea, the idea of purity, the idea of cleansed, being becoming cleansed from our sins. And we don't wear gold. Uh, in fact, women have a custom to not wear jewelry as well. All this is because we don't want to, we want to distance ourselves so much from the golden calf and from anything that could potentially uh, evoke it, bring it up, and use that existential sin of the Jewish people to somehow sully our pursuit of forgiveness. Now, it's interesting, the Kohen Gadol high priest, it's not just on Yom Kippur that he has a special role, it's every day. And in fact, we we read in the Talmud, we talked about it a few weeks ago, how the garments, the eight garments, the gold garments, do bring about forgiveness and atonement for the Jewish people. But that's only outside the Holy of Holies. Once he goes into the peak, the apex of holiness, there has to be a certain commensurate rise in eschewing of any spiritual blemishes. Yes, the high priest can wear gold outside the Holy of Holies, but once he goes there, once he reaches that point, there cannot be any indication of the golden calf. Now, the process is, Rashi tells us, on Yom Kippur, there's going to be a lot of changing of clothing because every time he, the Kohen Gadol walks into the Holy of Holies, he does it a total of four times. He switches into white garments and then he has to bathe in the, in the mikvah and the ritual waters. He has to clean his hand, hands and his feet and then get changed. And they get when he walks out of the Holy of Holies, he has to change back into the gold garments. So that happens uh, multiple times, changing clothing back and forth. Now, we're told what he should bring with him. He has uh, various uh, sacrifices, two goats, the one ram, and of course, there is the sin offering, the bull. And the parsha delineates what he has to do with all these various sacrifices. So first, in verse 6, we read that he brings near, he offers his own sin offering bull to provide atonement for himself and for his household. There's going to be some layers here in the atonement process. The first individuals that need to be atoned for is the priest himself, and then he moves on to the rest of his brethren and the rest of the Jewish people. And the idea being is before someone could be a effective advocate for someone else, they got to make sure that their house is in order, their Dutch are in order, and they are clean of sin. So before he's going to stand before God in his role as a representative of the Jewish people, he has to first make sure that he himself and his family are cleansed from any sin. And then the next thing we read about is that he takes the two goats, the two male goats, which are identical, and he brings them to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he does a lottery. And he takes, there's there's two uh, wooden or subsequently golden lotteries, and he has to mix them up in a box, and on one of them, it says, for God. And on the other one, it says, for Azazel. And this is a really interesting procedure here that they would do in 
the tabernacle and, of course, absolutely in the temple, and they did it for years, where one of the identical goats was brought as an atonement sacrifice to the Jewish people, and the second goat was taken outside of Jerusalem to a far place, to a cliff, and chopped off a cliff. And by the way, the term scapegoat, it, uh, to my knowledge, derives from this idea that this other goat essentially was a lottery. He wasn't guilty necessarily, but all the sins of the Jewish people are going to be placed upon that other goat, and it's going to be chopped off a mountain. It's a very obviously unusual procedure, and we have to, of course, delve into what's the meaning behind that. Now, incidentally, Talmud tells us that during the righteous reigns of the high priests, they would always have the lot that said, for God, come up in their right hand. Again, they stick their hands in with the right hand to put out one, pull out one of the lotteries. With the left hands, they pull out a second one, and then they place it upon the heads of those uh, of those animals, of those goats. During the reign of Shimon HaTzadik, Shimon HaTzadik is the second, the early second temple era high priest. For 80 consecutive years, the lot that said for God came up in his right hand. And that, of course, is an indication that the Almighty is happy with him and with the Jewish people. And eventually we're going to read, of course, the, the, the Parsha is written in chronological order of what has to happen on Yom Kippur. So, and everything has been done to precision, to perfection. You've got to follow it perfectly. Uh, so, it's a few verses later we're going to read about what happens to that scapegoat. You know, one of them is offered as a sacrifice and its blood is, 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 is thrown on the, uh, on the altar. It's like a very uh, spiritual destiny, whereas the other one seems to head in an entirely different direction. It's taken by some individual miles and miles outside of the city and it is, it is thrown off a, a cliff. So what's the meaning behind this whole idea of the scapegoat? So you look at the Ibn Ezra. He tells us that this is a secret. I can't tell you what it is. I can't reveal it to you. And the Ramban, the Ramban quotes this Ibn Ezra and he says, ah, I'll reveal you that secret. And he says something very fascinating. He says that there's uh, two identical goats and one's a sacrifice for God and one is thrown off a cliff. And he quotes the Midrash that this is representative of Jacob and Esau and Esau. You have these two brothers. They're twins. They're identical. And yet one of them heads in one direction and the other one heads in the diametrically opposed direction. In fact, the Midrash points out that the Hebrew word for goat is sa'ir, and the Hebrew word that is applied to Asaph, to Esau, when he was born, that it was very sa'ir, it was very hairy. And it's, a, and it's an interesting connection that the, uh, that the hairy Esau is represented by the goat that is thrown off the cliff. And then he quotes another Midrash from the Pirkei de Belazer, uh, very interesting, that the objective of the scapegoat is to distract and to bribe the Satan. And it gives a whole dialogue between the Satan and God. And of course, in Judaism, the Satan is not a counterweight to God. It's, in fact, an angel of God. But its role is to be a prosecutor, to invoke the sins of people, and to demand retribution and punishment for them. So this angel comes to God and says, Master of the world, you let me prosecute. You let me invoke the sins of all the nations, how come you don't let me do that to the Jewish people? How come I can never get rid of them? So the Almighty responds back, and this is all brought by, by the Ramban. The Almighty responds back, well, you know what? I will give you one day. I'll give you the day of Yom Kippur. That day, 
you don't inspect the Jewish people if they have any sins, and if they do, then they're fair game. And therefore, continues the Midrash, we give him, i.e. the Satan, we give him a bribe on Yom Kippur so that he should not, he should be too consumed with the bribe and he shouldn't distract the Jewish people from doing what they want. And the idea being is that the, we take him out to kind of uh, the boondocks outside of society and we're offering almost, so to speak, it's not a sacrifice, but we're offering a sacrifice to the Satan, so to speak. That's what's implied over here. And he's so focused on that and therefore, he's not able to distract the Jewish people from doing their process. Moreover, in, again, this uh, very advanced spiritual concept that the sins of the entirety of the Jewish people are conferred upon this animal, this scapegoat, and therefore, once that is destroyed, with it go the sins of the Jewish people. And as a result, the Satan comes back. And he starts investing in the Jewish people and he says, okay, well, they're all free of sin. And he's totally surprised and perplexed by this. And he tells God, he says, you have this nation that they're exactly like angels. They're always standing, like angels stand, Jewish people stand in Yom Kippur. They're fasting, the angels don't eat, Jewish people don't eat on Yom Kippur. They're totally cleansed from sin like angels. They're totally peaceful. And the money is listening to this testimony And that's what the prosecutor is saying about the accused. And of course, that grants the Jewish people categorical acquittal. And indeed, they're allowed to live for another year and to flourish. And indeed, their sins are all atoned for. And many of the commentaries invoke this idea with respect to Yom Kippur that the, you know, we tend to think, or at least erroneously think, that Yom Kippur is a sad day. It's a day we're fasting. It's kind of a day of long prayer. But it's the only fast day that is really commemorating a very happy event. And that is that this day, we're like angels. And because we're like angels, we're cleansed. And because we're cleansed, we're eternal. We haven't, they haven't gotten rid of us as much as they tried. We're the one nation that's small and scattered throughout the land, and yet we're still standing. What is the secret to Jewish continuity? How do we continually survive despite everything that we've gone through? The answer is Yom Kippur, because every Yom Kippur our sins are brought back to zero, and therefore we don't have enough sins to allow the Satan, so to speak, to lobby God successfully to be to destroy this people because we're never guilty of we don't there's no preponderance of sin that would allow the Jewish people to justifiably be destroyed. Okay, so that's the uh, the two goats that we read about over here. One that goes that's designated for the Azazel, and the second one that is brought as a sacrifice. And then we read about the incense offering. This was done in the Holy of Holies, where the high priest Aaron, in this case, takes a, a shovel full of coals, and that's from the top of the altar. He carries them into the Holy of Holies, and he brings them. Uh, he offers them. He pours the incense upon the coals in the Holy of Holies. This was typically done outside of the Holy of Holies on the golden altar, but on this one day, it is done on the cover of the Ark in the Holy of Holies. Incidentally, the Mishnah tells us that during the Second Temple era that there there wasn't the Ark. The Ark was put away. No one really knows where it is, but they did not have an Ark, and the high priest would do this same offering. He would do it on a stone that was slightly elevated from the ground, and according to many of the scholars, that stone is the very same stone which is now enshrined in the shrine called the Dome of the Rock on top of Temple 
mount. So that's uh, the process that he has to do. He shall place the incense upon the fire before Hashem so that the cloud of the incense shall blanket the ark cover that is atop the tablets of testimony so that he shall not die. Again, if there is uh, anything that's done improperly, if the order is tinkered with, if any improper activities are done on this day, uh, it's quite uh, implicit over here that the high priest will indeed die. The Talmud tells us, the book of Yoma, that during the second temple era, there was a corruption in the office of the high priest. Previously, it was given to the most righteous of the high priests, of the, of the priests. He was the one who was designated to be the high priest, the, the Kohen Gadol. But in the second temple era, uh, the Sadducees, the Tzedokim, together with their uh, conspirators in the Greeks and eventually the Romans, they would pawn it off. They would sell it to the highest bidder. So you have an instance where someone who's a Kohen, but not a righteous Kohen, they become the high priest. Many of them, they rejected the principles of, of Torah, and consequently they would tinker with the, the procedures of the, of Yom Kippur, and indeed they would die as the Torah predicts. So the Talmud tells us that they would tie a rope to the leg of the high priest to be able to drag him out, because after all, no one's allowed to walk into the Holy of Holies. So if you have a high priest, on the day of Yom Kippur coming in and doing things wrong and dying, well, how are you going to get him out? So they put a chain or a rope to his leg and they would just pull him out in the event, in the unfortunate event, in the tragic event, that he would try to sabotage the process of Yom Kippur as outlined in the Torah and as elucidated in the Talmud and in oral law. And of course, there was a backup. They would have a backup Kohen in the event that the uh, the high Kohen, the high priest, would die and would, or would corrupt the the procedure. And then we read about the sprinkling of the blood, one up, seven down. This is done in the Holy of Holies, first with the bull and then with the with the goat. And then both bloods are sprinkled out of the Holy of Holies on the curtain that separates the two parts of the Mishkan. And then the high priest would provide atonement for himself, for his household, and then for the entire congregation of Israel. So again, the first uh, at the beginning, the, the first people that he's trying to find atonement for, for is, are his himself, and then eventually it spreads to try to cover others. Now, as a general rule, it's kind of odd this idea of the high priest atoning and even confessing for for other people. After all, it's it's their sins. It's not it's not his sin. What is this idea that? The high priest is going to be praying and atoning and, and repenting for the whole Jewish people. After all, the whole Jewish people did their own sin. And if you did your own sin, you're the owner of it. And you need to repent yourself for your own sins. So there's an amazing idea here that I heard from my grandfather. The first Yom Kippur in history was the day that God finally granted forgiveness to the Jewish people as a result of the sin of the golden calf. The Jewish people do the sin of the golden calf, seventh day of Tammuz. Moses goes up for 40 days to ensure that God does not destroy the Jewish people. And then on the first day of Elul, he goes up a, a third time, uh, this time with the second set of tablets to be inscribed by God. And he comes down 40 days later, which is on Yom Kippur. And that is the same day that God told him, I have forgiven as you have requested. I've forgiven the Jewish people entirely for the sin of the golden calf. So in essence, the power of the day is the fact that this is the day that God provides atonement, of course, but who lobbied for that atonement? 
that was Moses. So the power of the day is the notion that someone can provide atonement for someone else. And just like Moses was the first to do that on the, on this, on the original Yom Kippur, the high priest can also do that on subsequent Yom Kippurs. He provides atonement for other people in the way that Moses did as well. And then we read, uh, about the, eventually the, the male goat that is sent to the Azazel and he is thrown off, off the cliff. And uh, the Talmud tells us that there was a red string that they would have on the, uh, in the, in the temple and the whole nation was watching the red string. And when the individual who was tasked with taking the, the goat, to the Azazel, when he would push the animal off the Azazel, again, the animal that's bearing the sins of the whole Jewish people, that red string that was in the temple would miraculously turn from red to white. And to demonstrate the Jewish people were indeed forgiven. The Talmud goes on to say that for 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the red wool string remained red. The atonement of Yom Kippur was not as powerful as it was previously. And this uh, was the most busy day of the Kohen's uh, year, and if he would do it, if he was successful, he uh, that we read about on 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 Yom Kippur during Musaf, he would, he would be a huge party, a big delight. They would dance. Everyone was so excited that he managed to secure forgiveness for the whole Jewish people on this very powerful day. Now, in verse twenty three, we read something interesting that the high priest would remove the linen vestments and he would leave them there. A really interesting term. Rashi tells us, quote from the Talmud, the book of Yoma, page 12, that he would leave them there. That implies that he would never use those garments again. He used those four white garments on Yom Kippur once, and the following year, he would use a different one. They can't be reused. What's the idea? So I heard an amazing idea as to why the linen garments used by the Kohen Gadol in year one cannot be reused on year two. And he says that repentance, you know, to us, it's like a very fuzzy concept. But you look at the sources, it's clear. Someone does a sin, it's akin to a blemish. Someone does repentance, it is removal of the blemish without any scar. And the Rambam has a very famous line where he tells us the laws of repentance. It's almost as if God himself testifies that the person who sinned will never sin again. Their repentance was complete and was genuine. So if you think about that, what happens after Yom Kippur? You have everyone's cleansed from sin and everyone's sure that there's no sin anymore because the repentance was real. And therefore, the whole concept of needing another Yom Kippur to atone for sins, it's so foreign, it's so beyond the pale of we're, we're cleansed and we'll be cleansed forever. At least that's the understanding right after the atonement has been completed. And therefore, they take the garments and they say, okay, we don't need these anymore. And in fact, there is a custom in many Jewish communities that on the saddest day of the Jewish calendar, the day that marks the destruction of both first and second temple, many other tragedies that happened to the Jewish people, the ninth day of Av, the month of Av, which by the way, the first time that that happened was the, that's the day that the spies, the book of Numbers will read about uh, in a couple of months. That's the day that the spies came back from their journey, from their scouting, from their surveying of the land of Israel brought back the horrible report 
And the Jewish people cried needlessly and God says, oh, you want to cry needlessly? I'll give you a very good reason to cry on this day. And of course, the saddest day of our calendar and a, and a date that we constantly cry for all the terrible things that have happened to us on that day and what resulted from that day. So of course, that's a fast day, the ninth day of Av, Tisha B'Av. And it's a day that we say all kinds of lamentations, literally the book of lamentations, plus other prayers of sadness and of mourning, we say, on that day. There's a very thick book that you could buy called the Book of Kinos, which is, Kinos means crying. This is the, the prayers that we say on the ninth day of Av. And of course, the hope is that temples rebuilt, Jewish people go back to Israel, Messiah comes, that that becomes a fleeting memory of the past that we no longer have to mourn because everything that bad that happened to us on that day has been reversed by Messiah. That's the hope every every Tisha B'Av. And some people have accustomed to take that book and to put it away, to archive it, to never reuse it. Because after all, after Tisha B'Av is over, we're so convinced this is the last one and therefore we won't need it again. And of course, uh, sadly, it's been almost two dozen years that Tisha B'Av comes around and we still need it. So that's the conclusion of the Yom Kippur services. And then we read about the eternal commandment of Yom Kippur, the commandment that applies to us today. This shall remain for you an eternal decree in the seventh month, the month of Tishrei. On the tenth of the month, you shall afflict yourself. You shall not do any work, neither the native nor the proselyte who dwells amongst you. For on this day, he shall provide atonement for you to purify you from all your sins. Before Hashem shall you be purified. This is the day that we fast, that we afflict ourselves, that we issue the physical realm entirely, because in this day we're like angels. And it's important to stress that just like in Olam Abba, just like in the afterlife, the Talmud tells us it's a time, it's a place where there's no food. Why is there no food? And in fact, the Talmud goes on to say that there's no food, there's no eating, there's no standing, there's no, there's no procreation, there's no competition. All the things that personify our world don't apply in that world because that's a spiritual world. Here's a physical world. Physical world, you need physical things. You need physical food, etc. Olam Abba, the spiritual world, you don't need food. Not that you don't have food, you don't need it. Yom Kippur, we ascend to a holy level. We become like angels. And just like in Olam Abba, you don't need food. On Yom Kippur, you don't need food. It's not a time of sadness. It's actually a reflection of happiness and joy and ecstasy fitting for the level that we achieve on Yom Kippur. And I think it's also important to, re- to read uh, this verse. For on this day, God's going to provide atonement for all our sins. He's going to purify us and we'll be close to God. On this day, we're close to God. It's the root of the holiday almost. Normally, we have barriers separating us and our Creator. And on Yom Kippur, those barriers are temporarily removed. It's one of those days in the Jewish calendar that a lot can be achieved in one day. Normally, you face stiff resistance in your pursuit of God, in your pursuit of spirituality, in your pursuit of being close to your soul. That's normally. On this day, those barriers are temporarily lifted, and whatever you grab on that day, you can keep with you subsequently. In fact, the Talmud, the book of Nadarim, tells us that the word hasatan, the satan, which is emblematic of the thing that barrier, the, those barriers, the things that separate us from God, the gematria, the numerical value, every Hebrew letter has a corresponding number, the numerical value of the word hasatan is 364. And that's to tell you that there's one day a year that that entity, that that barrier, that that resistance, 
that that headwinds that we have in our spiritual pursuits does not exist. That's Yom Kippur. We're close to God. We become pure and he atones for us. It's also interesting, you know, that's also the day of the sealing of judgment. And my uh, Rebbe, Rabbi Asharieli, he once pointed out that if you think about it, there's no greater, there's no greater gift than to have our judgment sealed on the very day where God is most inclined to forgive, to mercy, to acquittal. What an amazing thing that the Almighty set up that the judgment should be sealed on Yom Kippur, the day designated all the way since the time of the golden calf, designated as a day for forgiveness and atonement and expiation of even the most severe of sins. I want to point out another idea here. If you look at this verse, verse 30, on this day you'll be atoned and you'll be purified. So there's certain kinds of, of various different kinds of cleansing that we see here in this verse. There's, there's atonement, uh, kapara in Hebrew, and there's purity, which is tahara. Different words describe different degrees of, of purification. So my grandfather of blessed memory, he said that the word kapara is similar to the word kaporet. Kaporet was one of the items needed in the, in, in the temple, the tabernacle, and that was the cover of the arts called the kaporet. And my grandfather explained that that's the idea, the root of the idea of kapara, of atonement, is to conceal, it's to cover, almost like you have radiation. What do you do with nuclear waste? Yeah, it's a problem because you can't really get rid of it, but you could try to contain it. You could cover it. You could conceal it. You put it in a, in a lead box and you, you bury it. It's still present, but it's not manifested. Similarly, the idea of atonement is to take the sin and to kind of cordon it off, to quarantine it, to contain it. It's not gone. Whereas the higher level that we also achieve on Yom Kippur, of course, there's atonement, but hopefully there's purity as well, where the sin has been totally cleansed, it's been totally removed, it's not just contained, it's not just limited, it's not just suppressed, it has been cleansed, it has been removed. So that's the uh, day that we uh, revisit every year. And just uh, quickly, uh, Rabbi Israel Salanter said that it's such a powerful day that if it only happened once every 70 years, then people would wish each other, may you live to see Yom Kippur, may you live to experience this tremendous spiritual achievement where the Jewish people are close to God, where a day where God is saying he's welcoming our prayers, he's invested in trying to find a way to provide acquittal and atonement and purification for the Jewish people. Chapter 17 begins, Hashem spoke to Moses, speak to Aaron and his sons, uh, not to do sacrifice, not to slaughter outside the temple, not to do uh, various other uh, procedures. So we know the sacrifice is only uh, the, the slaughter is only one part of the sacrifice. There's other pr- uh, parts of it. None of them can be done outside of the tabernacle. There are, of course, certain ex- exceptions. Uh, for example, uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel and and Gideon as well. There are some times where that is temporarily suspended, and of course, there's also times before the temple was fully. Uh, established on a permanent basis. It was possible to do what's called a bama, which is a private altar. But besides for that, it has to be done inside the confines of the camp, inside the confines of the tent of meeting, inside the tabernacle. And if someone does not do that, if someone brings a sacrifice outside of the tabernacle, it's considered bloodshed. This is verse 4. For that man, he has shed blood, and that man should be cut off from amidst his people. Rashi says something very scary. If someone does uh, sacrifices outside of the temple grounds, the tabernacle grounds, he is as guilty 
as a murderer. Very harsh uh, statement the Rashi here quotes from our sages. Now, the commentaries explain what's the rationale behind this. And some of them invoke the prohibition on Adam against consumption of meat. Adam was told, you eat all the grass, you got to be vegetarian, you be vegan, but you cannot have any meat. You can't certainly not kill any animals to consume their meat. After the flood, Noah and his descendants, they were permitted to kill animals for their enjoyment and, of course, for sacrifices. But if someone does an improper sacrifice, well, that was never permitted. And that reverts back to the prohibited stage as if it wasn't permitted and therefore it's, it's bloodshed. Of course, it's not as bad as murder, but it's still uh, pretty bad. And the section, the paragraph concludes, don't – they should no longer slaughter their offerings to the demons after whom they stray. This should be an eternal decree to them for the generations. They have to do this, their, their sacrifices properly, not the way they used to do in the past when they were idolaters and they would slaughter their offerings to demons as was done in Egypt and done in various other places. And if they do that, they're deviating, they're straying away from God. And uh, this is an interesting idea here. Rashi tells us that there's, uh, there, you know, you, you read this verse, you kind of kind of miss it. But uh, if you read it slowly, it jumps out of you that they used to sacrifice uh, offerings to demons. A very unusual thing. And that's, of course, it's strained from God uh, because only God can do good or bad. There's no other powers. But uh, the idea of demons don't exactly appear in every uh, page of Jewish literature. So there's a very interesting essay here that the Ramban gives on on demons. The first time I saw it was this year, just mind blowing. He talks uh, all about demons and and how they how they're constructed and uh, they're created out of only fire and wind. They they could fly, but they could still die. And he quotes the Talmud that in three ways they're similar to angels, in three ways they're similar to humans. They eat, they drink, they procreate, they die like humans. Uh, how they die, uh, how they know the future like angels. But of course, uh, they're not something we should worship. Uh, they have no real powers. That's a really interesting essay here. The Ramban encouraged, if you're interested in reading about uh, demons, uh, 17.7, the Ramban here. Uh, I think it raises kind of more questions than answers because the whole subject is somewhat uh, opaque and murky. Uh, there is a very interesting story in the Talmud uh, about Rabbi Shum Baruchai and a demon that was quite helpful to him. Uh, he was trying to get the decree against uh, Judaism annulled in Rome and he had a, a very helpful demon that embedded himself or itself into the daughter of the Caesar and she was going crazy. Demon Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Shimon walks into Rome and I was like, oh, where's Rabbi Shimon? Where's, where's Rabbi Shimon? And he goes and he meets the family and he tells the demon, come out of this uh, this girl and they're so thankful. We want to give you a reward. He says, all I want is this document. He takes the document and rips it up. Really interesting uh, story, uh, how uh, how a demon helped uh, the great Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. But again, uh, just an interesting note here if you want to read about that, uh, the Ramban here on 17.7. And then we read about the prohibition against consumption of blood. Any man from the house of Israel shall not consume any blood. I shall consecrate my attention upon the soul. If someone does that, God says he's going to focus on this person. I'll cut him off from the midst of the people. For the soul of the flesh is in the blood. And I have assigned it for you upon the altar to provide atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that atones for the soul. So this is an interesting verse here, verse 11, this idea that you can't have blood because the blood is the soul and the blood is meant to be placed upon the altar. In fact, kosher meats are salted to remove the blood. But what is this idea that 
the blood is the soul of the animal and it's meant to be placed upon the altar. And therefore, you cannot have it. So the Ramban offers various explanations. Number one, he says that the simple understanding uh, seems to be that the blood was given for a specific purpose, to be placed upon the altar. And therefore, it was designated for sacrificial use. It cannot be used for any other use. A second explanation he gives, and just like we spoke about earlier, Adam was allowed to have animals and the animals were given to men and specifically to men because men could recognize God. But the animal was given, the body of the animal was for our physical use and the animal's soul, i.e. the blood, was for our spiritual use. And therefore, the body of the animal, the meat, the steak, we could eat and enjoy, but the soul of the animal, i.e. the blood, it's improper for us to eat that because if we eat that, then it's going to bring about judgment upon us because a soul eating a soul, of course, the soul of the human soul of the animal are different. But that is given to us for spiritual uses and not for physical uses. And finally, the Rabban gives a third explanation as to why we do not eat the blood. And that is because the blood, like the verse says, has the soul, so to speak, of the, of the animal. And if you eat that, you're going to mingle the human soul with the animalistic soul. And you're going to dull, you're going to weaken the powers of your spiritual soul with the, so to speak, soul of the animal. And he goes on to explain uh, that there's a difference between the blood and the meat. The meat gets digested, the blood does not get digested, and then right away it comes into the animal that consumes it. And if a human consumes the blood, he becomes less spiritually sensitive because now there's the effect, so to speak, of the soul of the animal uh, quivering within him. And the Ramban, once again, invokes his teaching at the beginning of Leviticus that the objective of a sacrifice is to replace the soul of man with the soul of the animal, i.e. the soul of someone sins against God. Well, that's a, should be an executable offense. That's mutiny against God. And therefore, they should really be killed. But in his magnanimity, God says, okay, I'm going to let you transfer your soul to the animal's soul. We'll kill the, the animal instead and sprinkle its blood upon the altar. Really, supposed to be your blood, but it's its blood instead. And therefore, you will be provided with atonement. And therefore, it's improper for us to eat that. That should be used for our spiritual needs. And if we do that, we're going to be imbibing in the soul of the animal. And that is not good because it's going to weaken our human, our powerful, our angelic soul. And the next mitzvah that we read in verse 13 also deals with the blood, and that is the covering of the blood. Uh, this is not uh, the consumption of the blood, it's the covering of the blood. Any man of the children of Israel uh, and the proselyte who dwells amongst them, who you kill a beast or a bird. So this is an undomesticated animal that's kosher, like a deer and a bird. This does not apply with uh, domesticated livestock uh, or sheep. You should pour out its blood and cover it with earth. This is the idea of Kisa Adam, the idea of covering the blood of the animal that you're killing. And again, we read, for the life of any creature, its blood represents its life. And therefore, I tell the Jewish people, don't consume the blood. The life of a creature is its blood, and whoever consumes it will be cut off. So the verse seems to connect the idea of consumption of blood, the prohibition of consumption of blood, with the idea of covering the blood. And the simple understanding is that, you know, you want to remind yourself not to eat from the blood, and therefore there's a mitzvah to cover the blood of the animals that you that you kill and you want to consume. Now it's interesting that this only applies to kosher non-domesticated animals and birds, but not animals that 
can potentially be offered as sacrifices. So a cow, a bull, a sheep, a goat, a ram, those animals, there is no mitzvah to cover their blood. And all the commentators offer many, many different interpretations as to why that way, that may be. So, for example, Archaim says that, you know, if you have a bird, it's really hard to catch. It's flying around. If you have an, an undomesticated animal like a deer, it's hard to catch. And therefore, when you catch it, you value it. I worked so hard to get that. I want to make sure I consume every little possible bit of this animal. I worked so hard to get it. And therefore, there's, there's more of a concern with an animal that's hard to catch that you may come to eat the blood and therefore it is supposed to be covered. Whereas uh, the animals that you have in your farm, the animals that you have in your barn, the livestock and the sheep, that's easy to catch and we're not as concerned, or the Torah is not as concerned that you may come to eat it. That's what he suggests. Balhaturim says a very deep idea. He says that you have animals that are offered as sacrifices. When an animal is offered as a sacrifice, that provides, that allows us to eat even animals that are not sacrifices. So we have a steak today. That comes from a cow, right? Cows were offered as sacrifices or bulls were offered as sacrifices and therefore the sacrifice that happened thousands of years ago, that allows me to eat this meat today. But undomesticated animals are not brought as sacrifices. And therefore, there is no... And, and and even birds, even though some of them are brought as sacrifices, but their blood is not sprinkled upon the altar, and therefore, their sacrifice does not provide as much atonement, and therefore, there is a risk. If we eat this animal without covering the blood, that may bring about judgment upon us, and therefore, we cover the blood. A very deep idea here. Now, just some backstory here. The Midrash, in the beginning of Genesis, it tells us that in the first homicide, the first uh, fratricide of history where Cain killed Abel, he did not know to, what to do with the corpse. He didn't know what to do with it. And the Almighty brought about two birds that began a fight in front of him. And one of the birds killed the other bird. And then the bird who killed the other one dug a hole and buried the bird that he had killed. And right away, Cain was watching this and he knew to dig a hole and to bury his deceased brother. And therefore, concludes the Midrash, this is in Midrash Tanchuma in Bereshis, in Genesis number 10, chapter 10, therefore, birds merited, because of this story, birds merited to have their blood covered. Now, this is seems to imply that there's a certain degree of burial that is present here in this mitzvah, the idea of covering their blood is a way of, so to speak, burying them and providing them a, a dignified uh, a dignified uh, destiny. Chapter 18 is going to talk about uh, forbidden relationships and some other things that are forbidden as well. And it begins with a very interesting introduction. Hashem is what Moses is saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am Hashem your God. Do not perform the practice of the land of Egypt in which you have dwelled and do not perform the practice in the land of Canaan to which I bring you. So you're you're surrounded in bad company. You had bad influences in Egypt. You're going to have bad influences in the land of Canaan. Don't follow the ways of your neighbors and do not follow their traditions. Rashi tells us a very powerful idea that... When the Jewish people 
when they have neighbors, they end up finding the worst neighbors. The worst were the Egyptians and the Canaanites, and specifically the Canaanites that remained in the land of Israel after the conquest of the land. Very, very unusual thing here, that the Jewish people are always surrounded by the most spiritually lacking and decadent of people. First the Egyptians and then the Canaanites. And therefore they have to be worried. Don't behave like them. Don't learn from them. Don't be influenced negatively by them. So what's the idea? So there's various explanations presented or suggested as to why the Jewish people always live in the worst neighborhoods. Uh, One is the idea that when the Jews have unsavory neighbors, it actually keeps the Jewish people in line. You know, if you have, you're surrounded by lowlifes, you're not necessarily tempted to go be like them. And you could retain your Jewish identity and character. Whereas if your neighbors are very sweet and very pleasant and very moral, but very Gentile or, or still idolaters, there's a risk of you saying, uh, you know what? These neighbors are so cool. Let me be more like them. That's one idea. Uh, alternatively, we could say that perhaps the Jewish people were brought to those neighborhoods to be a positive influence on them. That almost as if God is taking the Jewish people. This is one of the theories with the idea of a wandering Jew. The Jewish people are always dispersed throughout the land. Why? To spread our influence as far and wide as possible. We're supposed to be the light into the nations. And therefore, we have to be next to the nations to influence them. Well, which nations we be next to? The ones that need the most help. Alternatively, we could maybe suggest that the Jewish people actually caused their Gentile neighbors to harden, to calcify their nature. Almost as if the, the, the Gentile neighbors of the Jewish people, the Egyptians, the Canaanites, they felt compelled to be a counterweight to the Jewish people and therefore to deepen, to, to intensify their, uh, their character. And then it's interesting here. It says, do not, not only do not perform the practice of the land of, of Canaan and the land of, of Egypt, but don't follow their traditions. That seems to not just include things that are prohibited, but even things that maybe are morally ambiguous. Like Rashi says, don't go to their stadiums. Don't go to their race courses. Don't participate in their culture. Don't participate in their society because you'll become influenced by them, which is why uh, in certain sects of the Jewish people, there's very much an emphasis on trying to retain a Jewish identity and Jewish culture and Jewish language, things like that, because of this idea to not follow the ways of the Gentiles, even the things that are not prohibited. And then it says, carry out my laws, safeguard my decrees and follow them. Again, this is all part of this introduction. I am Hashem, your God. You shall observe my decrees and my laws, which man shall carry out and by which he shall live. I am Hashem. So all different kinds of laws, laws you understand, laws you don't understand, walk in their ways. Rashi tells us, what does it mean to walk in the ways of mitzvos? It means to not absolve yourself from mitzvos. Don't say, oh, you know what? I study Torah. I can move on to other wisdoms. Torah is infinite. You cannot finish it. You have to always walk in it. It's like an endless path. And therefore, you can never say, you know what? I have been granted a degree in Torah. I know it all. I can move on to other pursuits. The sages tell us that the Torah is compared to water. And the Chavetz Chaim of Blessed Memory used to explain that this is like a sea. You know, if you if you step into the Pacific Ocean and it's up to your ankles, you're like, hey, I could walk to Japan. But of course, the deeper you walk in, the deeper you realize that it is. Similarly with Torah, the people that are the least educated in matters of Torah, they're convinced that they know it all. But the more someone immerses themselves in the seas of the Torah, 
the more they realize how much there is. The Torah is God's knowledge. God is infinite. And therefore, his knowledge, his Torah, is likewise infinite. And therefore, we can never move on to other pursuits by saying that we're done with Torah. And there's an interesting verse, verse 5, very famous verse, you shall observe my decrees and my laws by which man shall carry out and by which he shall live. There's an idea here that when someone does mitzvot, they live. And Rashi tells us, what does that mean that they live? They live in the afterlife. Don't say it means they live here because after all, every human that lives here, every human in their constitution of body and soul eventually dies. And therefore, the Torah says that they will live. It must be they will live eternally. Life has to be permanent, and only via mitzvot does someone merit eternal life. There is an amazing Ramban. I don't want to go through it at length, but the Ramban lays out the four times in the Torah that it says you do mitzvot, you get life. And he explains that these four times correspond to the four different motivations that someone has with mitzvot. And therefore, each motivation that someone has with a mitzvah is going to spawn life but different kinds of life. Depending upon the motivation someone has with doing a mitzvah, that's going to determine the kind of life that the mitzvah will spawn. And as an aside, the Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin derives from this verse that you do mitzvahs and you shall live, that the mitzvah is given to us to live and not to die. And therefore, if someone, let's say, has a potential life that needs to be saved, that can override many mitzvahs. So you could drive to the hospital on Shabbos to save a life that mitzvah was given to us to live and not to die, with the exception of three cardinal sins, idolatry, adultery, and of course murder. Those are the things that you have to give up your life and not transgress. So the rest of the parasha is going to detail mostly uh, the prohibited relationships that someone uh, may not uh, may not have. So the nakedness of your father, you shall not approach. The nakedness of your mother, don't be with your father's wife. Don't be with your sister. Don't be with your daughters. Don't be with your granddaughters all the various different forbidden relationships that are outlined by the Torah. But it begins in verse 6, a man shall not approach his close relatives to uncover their nakedness, I am Hashem. So this is an additional mitzvah. There's one mitzvah, one prohibition against copulation, against intercourse with one of these forbidden relationships. But then it begins to not even approach them. So this is a prohibition against anything that could potentially lead towards any sort of promiscuity is also prohibited. So any sort of flirtation, things like that, that could get close to forbidden relationships are also prohibited. So just a few things that are interesting here. In verse 18, for example, we read about a man should not be with two, not be with two sisters. You should not take a woman in addition to her sister to make them rivals to uncover the nakedness of one upon the other in her lifetime. So this is one of the unique relationships that when the relationship is caused by a third party and that third party dies, then the relationship is now permitted. So for example, a man has a a wife and the wife, of course, has a mother. That mother-in-law is prohibited to him. But if the wife dies, the mother-in-law is still prohibited to them, even though the link connecting those two people has has been lost, that prohibition stands. Similarly, someone has a daughter-in-law and tragically their son dies, the daughter-in-law is still off-limits for the father-in-law. Whereas a sister, someone marries one sister, he's not allowed to mar- marry the second sister, but if the first sister dies, the second sister is permitted. So for example, uh, Ariel Sharon, who was a great general prime minister in in Israel, his sis, his wife died in a car accident, I think in 1962, and he went on to marry her sister 
after the death of his first wife, and it's apparently quite common. Uh, verse 19, you should not pro- approach a woman in her time of unclean separation. A woman is menstruating, she is called a nida, and no one is allowed to lie with her, no one is allowed to be with her. Uh, the Talmud tells us in the book of Nida, page 31b, that why does the Torah prohibit a man from being with his wife when she is menstruating? Because if a person is always allowed to be with his wife, they never have time that they're off, so to speak, he will get sick of her. He'll get tired of her. The pizzazz, the excitement of the relationship will dissipate. And therefore, says the Torah, take a break. And when the break is over, your love and your lust even, your desire for your spouse will be restored to the way it was on the day of your wedding. And that's a way to keep a relationship uh, between husband and wife, the physical relationship, the intimate relationship, to keep it fresh and to not, God forbid, uh, allow people to look elsewhere, but also to have people, people have uh, rewarding and fulfilling and gratifying relationships, not just in the spiritual sense, but with their wife in the most intimate uh, sense as well. And then there's another uh, mitzvah here. This is not a, a sexual nature, and that is the idea of not giving your children to molech. Molech was a certain kind of, of idol, and the way this idol was was served is that the child uh, was passed uh, through the fire. And there's a disagreement here amongst the commentaries whether or not the child was actually killed if this was child sacrifice or not. The Rashi and the Rambam, they say no, it was just you pass him through the fire and that was the means of worship. The Ramban, another very long essay here, and he proves conclusively no, that this was actually a way of killing the child. This was infanticide. You kill the child, you pass him back and forth over the fire until they die. And the Midrash adds a brutal, uh, macabre, heinous component to this that they would actually have a band playing music so that the father would not hear the shrieks of his son or his daughter being killed in this heinous, horrific, brutal way. It's kind of stunning to us the devotion that people would have to idolatry, what they would even do to the idol to kill their own child, just so unimaginable to us. And of course, this is a grave desecration of God's name, as the verse continues to say, don't present any of your children to pass through Molech, do not profane the name of God, uh, the name of your God, I am Hashem. There can be nothing as heinous as taking the child, the child who's holy, and giving him to the idol and killing him in this terrible, brutal way. And, of course, there is the mitzvah against, uh, prohibition against sodomy. A man cannot be with a man as he is with a woman. It's an abomination. A man cannot be with an animal. A woman cannot be with an animal. Bestial is also prohibited. And the parsha concludes, did not become contaminated through any of these because the people who lived the land of Israel, they did that and the land became contaminated and the land kicked them out. The land vomited them out. The land disgorged its inhabitants and God promises if the Jewish people do that, they too will be kicked out of the land. Don't behave like that because this land is not like any other land. The land has a certain degree of spiritual intolerance to sin, and the land itself will vomit them out. And the Ramban has another long essay. There's many long essays by the Ramban here, but he talks about the idea of direct divine oversight to this land. Every other land has a certain filter through which God's influence is 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 um, is brought through, whereas the land of Israel does not have any filter. The eyes of God are watching Israel from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. The land itself harbors an intolerance for impurity, and therefore the people who live in the land have to be worthy of it, 
if they're not worthy of it, the land itself will kick them out. And I find it uh, striking that no land has traded hands as frequently as the Holy Land, as the land of Israel. No land has been conquered and then lost as frequently. And this is the idea. This is the reason why you find at the end of the Parsha in chapter 18, because the land itself does not sit idly with the people who live on it behaving improperly, behaving at a spiritually decrepit and in immoral fashion. And if we want to maintain our continuity over the land, you should safeguard my, my charge, not do any of the abominations, the traditions that were done before you, do not contaminate yourself through them, and the Parsha ends, I am Hashem, your God. And of course, the email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. Check out the many podcasts, Parsha podcasts, of course, you're listening to the Jewish History Podcast, Eternal Ethics, the many other podcasts that we have over here. And of course, our website is torchweb.org. I look forward to hearing from you again, rabbiwolby at gmail.com.